freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. The only way they can inherit the freedom we have known is if we fight for it, protect it, defend it, and then hand it to them with the well-taught lessons of how they in their lifetime must do the same. And if you and I don't do this, then you and I may well spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 248 of Gun Freedom Radio, where we engage, we educate, and we inform. We are brought to you by azfirearms.com, your nationwide hometown gun shop. I am one of your hosts, Cheryl Todd. And I'm the other guy, Dan Todd. Our show today is Prayers and Presidents, and our guest is William J. Federer. Bill is a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and president of Amerisearch Incorporated, a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. Bill's American Minute radio feature is a broadcast daily across America and by the internet. His Faith in History television airs on the TCT network on stations across America and via direct TV. Welcome to the show, Bill. It's great to be with you. I am so excited to dive into uh, the topic that uh, I swiped right uh, boldly from the cover of one of your books, Prayers and Presidents, uh, because Bill, our nation is in a spiritual battle. And even for people that don't ascribe to a specific faith, I think they can understand that there's a definite battle for the American spirit. And all of our presidents must have realized that truth because each and every one has publicly offered prayers for our people and our nation. So you wrote a book compiling those prayers. Can you talk to us about what you learned as you were writing Prayers and Presidents? Sure. So I read through all the messages and papers of the presidents. Uh, started several years ago, and uh, this is uh, George Washington and John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, uh, you know, Andrew Jackson, all the way through and uh, then I was amazed at their references to God, religion, Christianity, and prayer. Mm. And so starting off, uh, I also read through all the colonial charters and all the state constitutions. And during the colonial times, they had this uh, concept uh, of God being real and present. And when things were bad, you would have days of prayer. When things were real bad, you would have days of fasting and prayer. And when things turned around, you had days of Thanksgiving. And so it was this relationship with the all-powerful God. And uh, it proves they were not deists. So after the scientific revolution, when Sir Isaac Newton discovered laws of planetary motion, laws of gravity, uh, laws of optics, and Robert Boyle, laws of pressure, and all these scientists were discovering laws. And some of the theologians said, said well, maybe God just made everything and set it up to follow these laws. And then like a guy winds up a clock and sits it on a shelf, it's all sort of following its course. And, and so uh, a, a pure deist does not pray. They think everything is just following these rules. 
And our, the founders of America were not that. They believed that God would intervene in your circumstance and in your situation and turn things around in response to your prayers. And so many of the colonies actually had annual days of fasting. Usually it was on Good Friday. Uh, and then when the Revolutionary War started, the different states, uh, colonies had days of fasting, Massachusetts and South Carolina and Georgia. And then the Continental Congress had days of fasting. Matter of fact, just two months before the Continental Congress had the Declaration of Independence passed, the, con the same Continental Congress had a unanimous day of fasting and prayer uh, to Almighty God through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ. And, and so then uh, when the Constitution uh, just got done, Washington is sworn in as the first president. He has a national day of prayer and thanksgiving, thanking God for the Constitution that was recently uh, ratified. Uh, of course, he understood what we were doing was unique. Uh, in Europe, it was ruled by kings, and these kings claimed to be, to be divinely appointed. And so they thought that uh, their uh, uh, God put them in the top position and that they dispensed the rights and privileges to everybody down below. America's founders did not believe that. They believed that the creator gave rights to every single individual. We're all equal. We choose leaders from amongst ourselves. And so it's a bottom-up form of government versus a top-down form of government. Anyway, so here's Washington thanking God for the um, uh, Constitution. And then there's the Whiskey Rebellion. And then uh, George Washington uh, has another day of prayer and thanksgiving. Uh, and then I walk it through. There's a threatened war with France. And President John Adams has two national days of fasting and prayer. Uh, you see, we had a revolution which was preceded by a Great Awakening revival. Uh, preachers like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Well, after us, France had a revolution, but it was preceded by a bunch of deists and atheists like Voltaire that mocked God and mocked Christianity. So once they got rid of their king, it turned into chaos, and they chopped off 40,000 heads in Paris and then sent their army to a rural area called the Vendee, and they killed 300,000 men, women, and children considered the first major genocide. And then France set up socialism. They called it uh, their motto, liberté, equalité, fraternité. And uh, fraternité is their word for socialism. It's the collective, it's the group. And equality can be understood two ways. In America, we understood equality as being equal before the law and equal opportunity. Well, over there, they thought it was an equal amount of stuff that everyone should have. And if the fraternity, the collective, the socialist state thinks you have too much stuff, it can take away your stuff and kill you. And so uh, Rousseau, who wrote the social contract, considered the father of the French Revolution, he says, if the state says to an individual, it's expedient for the state that you should die, that individual should die because his life is a gift made conditionally by the state. Well, wow. obviously, if you don't have God, then uh, there's a great quote from Eisenhower. Eisenhower said, in some countries, the state claims to be the author of human rights. If the state gives rights, it can and inevitably will take away those rights. So in America, our founders went above the king's head. We said we get rights from a source higher than the king. The king is infringing on our God-given rights, and therefore we're justified in rebelling against him. 
So our revolution and the French French Revolution were opposite. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, so here's John Adams twice having days of fasting and prayer during this threatened war with France. Thomas Jefferson, when he was governor of Virginia, he had a day of fasting and prayer. Right. So the Continental Congress requested the states have a day of fasting and prayer. And Jefferson, governor of Virginia, said, OK. And he's and you read it. It says that the gospel of Jesus Christ should go across the whole world. And uh, now he did not have a day of prayer when he was president. Why? Well, he thought that the government would be dictating it. And he understood uh, the difference between federal government and state government and the federal government's powers were limited and people had their freedoms under the state government. Uh, Over the years, especially after the Civil War, the the federal government began to usurp states' rights. But at the beginning, uh, Jefferson understood this. And then there's James Madison, and he is the president during the War of 1812. And James Madison has two days of prayer and a day of fasting when the British burn the White House. Right, so you got 4,500 British troops invade our capital. Uh, our troops just run away. Uh, we have to rem- remind ourselves Britain was the most powerful military on the planet. The king was like a globalist, he was like a one world government guy. He controlled India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Jamaica, Barbados, Bermuda, and, and he, <laughs> Canada, and he wanted America back. And so uh, these troops go into our capital and they begin to set everything on fire. And uh, then a storm comes and uh, the lightning begins to strike the British troops and tornadoes knock down chimneys and roofs and pick up British cannons, throw them yards away. And the British general, George Cockburn, uh, says to a lady, great God, madame, is this the kind of storm that you're accustomed to in this infernal country? To which the lady replied, no, sir, this is a special interposition of providence to drive our enemies from our city. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, but that's James Madison, the fourth president. He's interesting because he's the one that introduced the First Amendment in the first session of Congress, right? So separation of church and state, First Amendment. And here it's Madison's turn to be president. And he has days of prayer and days of fasting and prayer. Certainly, he did not think his First Amendment was to keep God out of government. That is so interesting. And what? I just got goosebumps about yeah, why that Why didn't we learn this stuff in school? I mean, this would have made school interesting. It's so true. And you know what I'm, I'm finding myself kind of wondering is, you know, I do get the separation of, of the state's rights from the federal, but had any of those presidents that you just mentioned been in office right now, do you think, do you feel like they would probably be uh, calling for maybe a, a day of prayer and fasting or two? <laughs> yeah, yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, so the ninth president is um, Zachary Taylor. And uh, there is a, I'm sorry, he's the, the 10th uh, president. So you have um, William Henry Harrison was the ninth president. He died in office. And so the next president has a day of uh, fasting and prayer upon the death of him. Uh, but then Zachary Taylor is the, the president during the uh, cholera epidemic in 1849. So he's the 12th president, if I have my numbers correct. And uh, so cholera it came from India, where the people bathed in the sewage-filled Ganges River. It was just an isolated disease until the British took over India. And the British put in railroads and steamboats, and now people infected with cholera, a waterborne disease, could 
quickly go back to Europe and millions died uh, in Paris and in Moscow and in London, and, you know, and all across Europe, Berlin, millions died. And, uh, and then uh, immigra Im people immigrating to America brought it with them. And so mm -hmm. we had tens of thousands die in America. Uh, you had them die in New York and St. Louis, uh, you know, up the Mississippi River to Chicago. And so the president is Zachary Taylor, and he has a day of fasting and prayer. It's interesting. He had it observed the very first week of uh, August. Well, by the end of the month, the death rates dropped off. Hmm. And uh, so here was a response to the, the prayer. Uh, during the, um, I, I sort of skipped over, but during the War of 1812, uh, James Madison had a, a, another day of prayer to be observed September 9th of uh, 1813. Well, what happened September 10th, 1813? Well, the British squadron is on Lake Erie, and uh, you have a 28-year-old Oliver Hazard Perry. Uh, most of his crew are free blacks from Ohio. They've never fought in battles before. And uh, he ends up defeating the entire British squadron. And he tells wow. his men on deck, the prayers of my wife are answered. And uh, so, but it's the day after the president. And of course, Madison declared the day of, of prayer months and months in advance. And so here, the, the day of prayer is up to September 9th. And the September 10th is this famous battle. Why is that battle significant? It's the one that gave us all of the Northwest Territory. Wow. Michigan, Ohio, you know, all those uh, areas that um, were the British were wanting to take back and we were able to save it. It's just story after story of David versus Goliath. Um, America is a story of David versus Goliath because, of course, what were we? We were a bunch of shopkeepers and farmers, you know, taking up our the arms that we had available to us up against the, as you said, global superpower of its time and uh then again here the battle that you just mentioned just goes on and on and and the fact that prayer uh and fasting uh is is such a part of each president's uh administration and the things that they they acted out in the the capacity of their office i I would have a hard time. I mean, you can't say correlation is causation, but I would have a hard time not at least looking at that, you know, um, no matter who I was. And, and this isn't, a, you know, a, a, a show about the Bible. It isn't, you know, we are Christians. And so it just kind of comes out in what we talk about and what we think and the way we say things. Um, and I know I have a lot of listeners that come from all manner of faith and perhaps no faith at all. So we're not trying to indoctrinate anybody here, but I think maybe we're offering some interesting things to at least spend some time thinking about, noodling on, as I like to say. Um, so I, yeah. I appreciate that, that run through history uh, of times when there seemed to be at least a correlation uh, to uh, results and prayer and fasting in, in preparation for some major events that happen in our nation? Well, uh, one, you know, a couple that can't be overlooked is Lincoln. So Lincoln had two national days of fasting and prayer. And uh, the one he, he had to be observed on April 30th, 1863. 
And he says, we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand that preserved us in peace, multiplied and rich and strengthened us. We've vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we've become too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, confess our national sins, pray for clemency and forgiveness. What happened two days later that changed the course of the war? Right, so May 2nd of uh, 1863, the South shoots one of their own best generals, Stonewall Jackson, right? It's the Battle of Chancellorville. He's outnumbered two to one and he's winning. And he comes back at twilight uh, after inspecting the battlefield and his own men yell, stop, who goes there? And before he can answer, they let off a volley of shots. They kill a bunch of men. They shoot him twice in the arm, once in the hand. He, he, gets dropped on the ground and they mangle him in the twilight and he ends up having to get his arm amputated and he dies a couple weeks later. And just about every Civil War historian will say if Stonewall Jackson had been at Gettysburg two months later, the South probably would have won. Mm. Now, it's hard to reconcile because Stonewall Jackson was a godly man. He uh, freed, uh, he did not own any slaves. He had a Sunday school class where he taught slaves to read, which was against the law back then. And, um, uh, but it was God's plan. And both FDR and Calvin Coolidge gave addresses that, you know, we can't go back and relive uh, the, the tensions and conflicts, but we can uh, realize that it was not God's will for our country to be divided. And it was God's will that, that slavery be ended. But I mean, you just can't see it. It was just two days after this national day of fasting and prayer that this, it wasn't the union having a better army and defeating him. It was this freak accident. And, wow. um, but then is... you, you go through, you know, all the, the Spanish American war, you got Teddy Roosevelt passing out, you know, new testaments. Um, matter of fact, Woodrow Wilson uh, had a day of fasting and prayer when we entered world war one. Hmm. And well, in several of these, when I put together the book, Prayers and Presidents, my wife said, well, what happened after they prayed? And so we put together another book called Miracles in American History, where we actually get into the details of the battle and we get into the Continental Congress having a day of fasting and then Washington's bottled up in New York, the Battle of Brooklyn Heights and the fog comes and allows him to evacuate with his entire army. And, uh, you know, so we go through these providential uh, occurrences in, in even more detail in the book, Miracles in American History. That's just amazing. I, we could, I can tell that you could go on and on, but uh, of course, if people just check out the book. No, I want to hear them some more. I mean, <laughs> that's I, why I'll I have just, more questions. I'll just be quiet and listen to them because this is amazing <laughs> stuff. Um, and I do, I want to get the book about the miracles. I saw that when I was on the site buying your newest book, which we're definitely going to get to. Um, but say the name of your newest book. It's about socialism. Right. Socialism, the real history from Plato to the present. And the subtitle is how the deep state capitalizes on crises to consolidate control. Mm hmm. And if yeah. I get started talking about it, it'll be the rest of the program. But it's a real eye-opener. Uh, we did, uh, just last week, did two interviews on the 700 Club, two days in a row. And we just sold thousands of them uh, this last week and um, all over the country. And uh, so it's, it's very important that people, you know, understand that socialism is a structured society of a ruling class and a ruled class. 
-hmm. And uh, the deep state ruling class, they get all the favors. They're sort of exempt from having to follow the law. And then everyone else is in the ruled class and they own no property. They have no privacy. They can't even control their own kids. The kids are taken away and indoctrinated with noble lies. And the government tracks you wherever you go. And uh, so that's socialism. It's a structured society of a ruling class and a ruled class. And uh, in order to, for, to get people to give up their freedoms, uh, you need to capitalize on crises, uh, yes. either create them or take ones that are coincidental and blow them out of proportion. Um, and so there's a whole series of political philosophers that talk about how to create crises and how to stir up racial strife. And then in that confusion, you do a coup. Um, but again, I will save that for another interview. It looks well, like we're seeing that now. That I was just going to say, I, I feel like we've we've seen it come in waves through American history, recent American history. And then we can definitely look to other nations and see how the, these tactics that we're seeing play out here in America have actually toppled other governments and destabilized other governments. Um, I mean, Venezuela is one that is such a recent uh, happen, happening that it, it's almost mind boggling to me that other people don't look at that as the cautionary tale that it, it probably, I mean, how can it not be a cautionary tale for us? Um, and, and so on that point, whether it's, um, you know, kind of by design way to destabilize our government, there's a lot of, you know, people could really argue for that or whether it's just, all right, we're 240 plus years old, uh, the United States is, maybe it's just growing pains, maybe it's just the way it happens. But right now, as we're in the studio, we are here Monday, uh, August uh, 31st, 2020, still in the middle of the COVID mess, still in the middle of um, rioting and unrest in our streets. Um, some are calling for the government to put more laws in place to quell the crowds. But I just, you know, I myself am wrestling with, is that the right decision? Because if we're for freedom, if we're for what our founding fathers took the time to wrote, write down for us in our constitution and our bill of rights, can more laws ever make us more free? Well, no. And uh, if you've, you know, played chess, the goal is to get your opponent into checkmate where whichever way they move, they lose. Uh, but we can see some trends in history. So the, the first invention ever was the plow. Cain was a tiller of the soil, the Bible says. And then people started hitting each other with them and they turned into weapons. And then people gravitated together for protection and formed the first cities. And when you get people together, someone's a little better at knowing how to fight than the rest. And everyone says, you be our captain. And you fight, you win, that's a good thing. But then this captain has kids and grandkids who claim to be a special family, an elite class, turns into a political machine, a, a mob, a gang leader. And before you know it, you got a king. And everyone wants to kiss up to this family and this guy at the top. And if you're challenging them, then you disappear. And so this is what repeats uh, itself. And so Plato talked about uh, democracy. And he says, it's the most charming form of government. And the chief characteristic is tolerance. Everyone tolerates each other. And then they tolerate people that are a little bit off. Then they tolerate people that are a lot off. Till finally they're tolerating crooks and crime and fraud and broad daylight looting and criminals are walking open on the street, let out of jail, and no one does anything about it. 
and it turns into lawlessness. And that's when the people begin to say, we need somebody to come along to fix this mess. And that's when some mayor or governor says, I'll fix it. I just need some emergency powers. And yes, uh, they, they seize the opportunity. And Plato says they finally stand in the chariot of state holding the reins of power and they're revealed as the tyrant. So democracy and, and without morals and virtue will end into lawlessness. And out of that lawlessness will come the clamor for uh, some, somebody to restore order. And that's when you'll have some uh, governor that'll uh, take the opportunity and make himself a, a little tyrant. Absolutely. Well, we're we seeing just need that. to thank God that none of those tyrants are in the White House right now, and and because uh, if they were, they'd have sh it shut down the whole country forever. And, oh, um, I can't imagine. I mean, all I have to think about is, um, you know, I think her name is Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, where you know she's like totally fine with the rioting and the looting and the lawlessness, but not on her street. No, because don't you understand? She has a special status. Right. And she was uh, she was part of the lockdown. Uh, but early on, she was said, yeah, nobody can get haircuts, but I need a haircut because I'm in the public eye. Like it's just such so blatant that these things happen. And, you know, when you blow that up to a grander scale to what we do end up with as human beings in different times in history, in different nations across uh, countries across the globe that it's again it's so mind-boggling to me that here in America where we have secured so much freedom and then bit by bit we we give it away we're like oh here we don't need this one you know or or I'll give away this freedom because I'm going to count on you to go control those people over there that I don't like and it just snowballs from there to the point that we I mean, it stands to reason that we will have someone eventually at, in the seat at the highest office that is going to act exactly this way, that, you know, here's these common sensey laws, gun laws for, for one thing, you know, y'all can't handle guns, can't handle that freedom, the, the tools are just too dangerous, but, you know, me as your leader, I have to have access to those tools and people around me that have access to those tools. And this is the kind of um, rhetoric and nonsense that we fight on a daily basis with the conversations we have on this show. Um, but I, I think that the answer to do more laws make us more free, the answer is? No, no. Matter of fact, a lot of the founders said, a people that legislates for itself ought to be in the habit of defending themselves. Mm -hmm. So the idea is you empower the individual, uh, not just in, in the ability to vote, but also in the ability for them to defend themselves. One, uh, I, I wrote a series of books. One is called Change to Chains, and it's an overview of 6,000 years of world history and how America is unique. And so I begin with Nimrod and Pharaohs and Caesars and Kaisers, and you see how the most common form of government is a king. And as the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger because with military advancements, they can kill more people. And with technological advancements, they can track more people until finally the King of England became the biggest. America's founders flipped it and made the people the king. And so I wrote another book called Who is the King in America? Well, it's the people. But it's interesting, I go through where did the founding fathers get this idea of people ruling themselves? 
uh, well, the New England pastors in Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and where did they get their ideas? From the Bible. What part of the Bible? That first 400-year period when Israel came out of Egypt before they got King Saul. It was a total anomaly that you don't realize until you study all the rest of world history. That here's Israel, they come out of Egypt, there are millions of them, and they have no king, and it works for 400 years. Why? Because every citizen is taught the law. Mm. And why do you follow the law? Well, every citizen is a personally accountable to a God who is watching everyone. He wants mm -hmm. you to be fair, and he's going to hold you accountable in the future. So you're about to steal. Nobody's around. You know you can get away with it. And then you think, God is watching me. He wants me to be fair. He is going to hold me accountable in the future. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. So it creates something in your head called a conscience. Mm -hmm. If everybody believes this, you can maintain complete order with no police. But if you get rid of this God, you just got a bunch of rules that some old men made up. Why follow them? Some will, some won't. Those that won't are going to yield to their selfish side, and they're going to start robbing, killing, stealing, looting, and smashing windows, setting buildings on fire. And that's when everybody's going to say, we need some King Saul to come along and restore order. And God uh, told the prophet Samuel, they did not reject you. They rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So mm -hmm. God's original plan for Israel was to not have a king, have everybody be equal, and everybody be taught the law and accountable to God. So this is called the Hebrew Republic. It was, again, an anomaly. Here they are, 400 years of slaves. They can't even read. And suddenly they get downloaded, the most unique form of government that the planet has ever seen. And, uh, and you look at it, Israel was the first nation with private land ownership. You see, wherever there's a king, you never really own the land. It's always going to be conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You cross the king, he will take away the land and kill you. Well, in ancient Israel, during this Hebrew Republic, there was no king, and the land was permanently titled to each family. If they got in a pinch and sold it, every 50 years it reverted back to that family. That prevented a dictator from gathering up all the land and putting the people back into slavery. Hmm. If you own land, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. Karl Marx called it being a capitalist. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, Karl Marx says, uh, communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. But yet here in the Bible, you, the families are given private property. It, ancient Israel was the first nation where there was no standing army. You have a king, he has an army to enforce his will. In ancient Israel, every man was in the militia. They were armed with a sword upon their thigh, and they were ready at a moment's notice to defend their family and their community. Mm -hmm. Right? And so ancient Israel, uh, again, was the first nation that could read. Only 1% of Egypt could read. And they had 3,000 hieroglyphs, and it was just for the pharaohs and the scribes. Uh, they actually kept the hieroglyphs complicated on purpose as job security. I mean, mm -hmm. imagine memorizing 3,000 anything. When Moses comes down the mountain, he does not just have the law. He has the law in a 22-character alphabet. So easy. First letter's Aleph, second letter Beth. Kids can learn it. No longer is reading and writing the, the communication of the deep state ruling class. Everybody can read. And so when we look at this model of ancient Israel, uh, this is what America's founders look back to. And I can go on and on. Um, you know, ancient Israel, anyone could be raised up into leadership. I mean, here's mm -hmm. Deborah, a woman. She becomes a national leader in Israel, not because she's related to royalty, 
It's just her. She knows the law. She's honest. She sits under a tree. People make their way all the way across the country for her to hear their case and tell her, tell them what the law says. Where else in the world at this time could a woman become a national leader who's not related to royalty? It's just her. And so ancient Israel allowed this upward mobility. And, uh, and again, it worked as long as the priests taught the law. When the priests stopped teaching the law, it says every man did that which was right in their own eyes. You got sodomites banging on doors, raping concubines. And, and that's when they go to Samuel the prophet and they say, we want to be like the other countries. We want a king. And so it's this model that, that Plato even referred to is that self-government only works as long as the people have morals and virtue. When they give up the morals and virtue, it turns into chaos and lawlessness. And that's when people clamor to have some strong government leader restore order. And that's when some governor or mayor usurps this power and stands in the chariot of state holding the reins of power and is revealed as the tyrant. And that's exactly what's happening right now. <clears throat> it's really sad. You know, people are just not, they, they're not taught consciousness they're, to be conscious. They're, it's terrible. Mm -hmm, for sure. And, and personal accountability, you know, and, and all those things that I, I believe that, that I was taught and we were taught when we were young is that, you know, my rights extend just so far as to where they impact somebody else's rights, uh, keeping my hands to myself, you know, uh, not being a, a tattletale, not being a, a mask uh, code uh, police enforcer, um, all these things that people are doing that are, they seem like little things, you know, the, the, well, it's just a mask. Well, it's just two weeks. Well, it's just, it's just, it's just, well, um, you know, by the time we pile all of those on top of each other, here we are, uh, what are we four or five months into this, this two week, uh, to stop the spread of COVID and look at what we have given up so willingly. So out of the, I don't know, I think out of the goodness of our hearts, I think people that, that want everyone to wear a mask, I think they probably have good uh, intentions, but the law of unintended consequences, what, what is that? Uh, hell, the road to hell is paved with, with good intentions. I think that, that that's what we're seeing right now and I'm not sure where this road is leading, this, this road that we're paving with, with all the stuff that we're doing and that we're giving up. Um, but it, this idea of globalization of, you know, well, we, we don't want it to just be like something local where we have a state leader. We don't just want there to be like a, a national leader, like a president. It, it seems to me that there are many people that are looking for someone that is a someone or something, some organization that is a global leader. And I, I struggle with that because one thing is I've, I've read the Bible and I know that, you know, that doesn't go so well uh, when we get to, to those chapters, um, to that chapter, but also because it doesn't make sense to me that we would give up the autonomy of being a, a sovereign individual who is part of a sovereign nation. Um, can you, I mean, maybe we already discussed it. Maybe what we just said is the answer, but can you tell me, you know, how, how is what's written in here? Maybe not enough people know what's written in here, our constitution, our bill of rights. How is this possibly compatible with the idea of uh, globalism and one world government uh, ideas? 
Yeah, well, they want you to give up. They'll, they'll promise you anything until you put your weapons down. Uh, it's like a little kid with a knife and the parent says, I'll, I'll, I'll give you candy, put the knife down. I'll, I'll take you to McDonald's. And, and as soon as the kid puts the knife down, all bets are off and you get spanked, right? Um, and so they'll, they'll promise you everything, just give up your weapons. But once you give them up, all bets are off. It'll be Chinese bulldozing down churches. It'll be North Korean Kim Jong-un. It'll be Sharia Islam coming in, you know, burning and, and butchering. Uh, and so it's, um, uh, you know, one of the things I've, found. And I, again, I wrote about this in a book called Rise of the Tyrant, and it's how democracies rise and fall. And so 500 years ago, Italy was a bunch of city-states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena, and they all had armies and fought. And a guy named Machiavelli thought if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting. So he writes a book called The Prince, where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end because it'll stop the infighting that any means necessary to get there is justified. So if a prince conquers a city, the people would hate him. But if the prince pays criminals to kill cows, burn barns, smash windows, set buildings on fire, agitate, the people will cry out for help. The prince will come in and dispatch with the very people he paid to create the problem. No one will know the better for it and that everyone would praise the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house and set it on fire. And then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher. And they'll pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. More recently, it's worded, never let a good crisis go to waste. It's an opportunity to push your big government agenda. Mm-hmm. They do it every day. Well, for sure that. And every time I, I think about that, I think about, you know, like computer viruses. I am just pretty convinced that whoever uh, is selling us the virus protection, it, they might have had something to do with creating the viruses. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so very much the way that you uh, describe the, uh, the Machiavellian uh, structure of, of government. Were you going to say well, something? Well, Bill, I just, you know, You've obviously studied history and went through all these presidents and learned a lot from them. But when do you think things started changing that it started going to the worst? I mean, where people don't have conscience, they don't, they're they're not accountable for their stuff. When do you think all this started? Uh, Well, there's lots of different time frames, but one of them was the Civil War. Prior to the Civil War, presidents referred to America as the United States are. After the Civil War, they said the United States is. Mm. And so in other words, uh, you had the states basically had, prior to the Civil War, many states had their own currency. After the Civil War, only one currency. Um, Now, that's the dilemma. Uh, You get good people in office, and they want to concentrate power into the hands of the government so they can do good more efficiently. But at some point in time, they're gonna have to turn it over to somebody else and they use that concentrated power to oppress people who wanna challenge them. The biblical example is Joseph in Egypt. He's a godly man and he concentrates power into the hands of the Pharaoh. And what does that Pharaoh do with the concentrated power? He feeds the children of Israel, gives them the best land of Goshen, gives them jobs taking care of his cattle. 
But then there was a new Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And he used all the concentrated power to oppress the children of Israel and even make them throw their sons in the Nile River. Mm -hmm. So that's the dilemma. You get a, a good president in and he wants to, you know, it was um, Republican uh, William Howard Taft. After being president, he became the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And he's the first chief justice to hire a clerk. And he's the one who moved the Supreme Court out of the basement of the Capitol into its own building. And he is the one who federalized and streamlined the court system. So prior to Taft, different districts in America could make different decisions and they didn't always jive. And that was okay. Sort of like some states would have blue laws and everything's closed on Sunday and other states would be open and some states would have a drinking age of 21, others 18. Everybody sort of was used to different parts. Well, it was this, you know, William Howard Taft, a Republican said, no, no, no. When the Supreme Court says it, boom, every other court has to line up. Mm. Well, he was a Republican. He got away with it. But then you got FDR, Franklin mm. Roosevelt. He packs a bunch of liberals on the Supreme Court. And now they say, okay, when we say it, it's the law of the land. It's like, wow, where did this come from? It was, it was a Republican that set up that system. You know, you had a, a you know, a president will put in place some, um, uh, you know, I think it was Jimmy Carter that put in place the Department of Education. And Ronald Reagan ran for office vowing to dismantle it. There's nothing in the Constitution that the federal government should be involved in education. Right. But there's a, there's a speech and he's introducing uh, Bill Bennett and, don't get me wrong, Bill Bennett is a godly man. He's a brilliant man. He's a great man. But uh, Ronald Reagan says, you know, when I was running for president, I said I wanted to eliminate the Department of Education. But then I met Bill Bennett. Mm. And it's like the devil sat back for eight years and said, okay, do your good stuff because you, you missed your chance to dismantle that Department of Education. When I get it back, I'm going to push Common Core, transgendered. I'm going to push, you know, Sharia is. I'm going to push everything. Mm. And, and so... Here you, you had a good guy. Reagan had this chance to dismantle it, but he didn't. And, but that's the dilemma. Uh, and, and so uh, the founding fathers understood that separated power is the best. Yes, Concentrated power is more efficient, but it can be efficient for bad. Mm -hmm. So I ask people, if, if you're accused of a crime and you're going before uh, the court, would you rather have your case heard by one politically appointed judge? He's very efficient. Or would you rather be heard by a jury of 12 of your peers? Now, uh, before you answer, uh, the outcome of this case will determine if you will be in jail the rest of your life or you will be free the rest of your life. Which one would you choose? Mm. Well, most people say, I'm going to take my chance with the jury of 12. All you need is one of them to say they disagree. And you can, you know, well, that's what our founding fathers had. Mm -hmm. The king of England appointed all the judges in America, and it was real efficient. You do what the king says or hedge Our founding father says, no, 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 uh, we're going to take the other side. We're going to trust the people. It may be messy. It may be, you know, we may make mistakes from time to time, but we'll trust the many rather than the few. Absolutely. And that's the underlying principle. Let's trust people. It's the Sweden model. Sweden had no lockdown, no masks, and their COVID death rates are minuscule compared to the rest of Europe. You look at South Dakota. I was recently at an event where the governor of South Dakota spoke and she said, no mask, no lockdowns, no COVID. She says, we decided to trust the people. 
and we don't demand everybody wear a mask. We didn't shut down any businesses. And he said, she said, our COVID rates are minuscule and people are moving to South Dakota in hordes. Why? Because they like being free. That's awesome. And, uh, and I talked, I was at a meeting and they had the um, Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina. And he gave some inside story that 17 Democrat governors were on the phone with each other and they decided to keep their states locked down so that Trump could not have rallies and mm-hmm. rally the Republican base. Uh, and so this is not based on science. It's totally political. It, it gives a whole new definition to political science because they're <laughs> using the word science, but it's totally political. Yes. So my takeaway on this program today is that if we had a president that would say, we're going to remove a lot of the laws and the government's not going to control the people like it has done in the last many years. There, there's our answer. Give it back to the people. Well, and our current president is right. reducing regulations. So it, in at least that sense, he is taking us closer to, um, you know, people ruling themselves. But so yeah, as and if you noticed in, in several of his speeches, he, he said, yes, there's riots in Portland. There's riots in his, I'm waiting for the governor to call me. Right. right. Why? If he was, let's say the previous president, yes. <laughs> he would send in his people right away and not even bother asking. Um, but in, in this case, the president is showing great restraint. Yeah. And, um, uh, so uh, the alternative is, uh, is is not even worth imagining uh, yeah. because it would shut down everything forever. You, you, you look at the COVID response. The first thing was let criminals out of jail. ISIS, you know, the MS-13 gang members. Uh, and then crime goes up. Gee, didn't see that happening. And then some people feel unsafe and move out of the big cities. Who? Well, maybe those with families and children, and maybe certainly those with enough financial means to move out. Okay, those people, pro-family people, they usually tend to belong to a particular political party. Well, who's left in the city? Maybe more people dependent on government entitlements and benefits and welfare. Well, they tend to belong to another political party. And then you shut down businesses, and then you have riots that destroy businesses, and business people move out of the city. Well, business people, they're usually belonging to that first political party. And then you shut down churches where social conservatives gather and pro-life people. Okay, they can't. And then you shut down the schools and you let a whole lot of kids out of school who have been indoctrinated with hate America, Howard Zinn's of People's History of the United States. And two thirds of the people rioting are spoiled white high school and college kids. Uh, And for some reason, uh, you know, single middle-aged women that uh, have been uh, jaded or something, I don't know, but they fit into that demographic. And so what the net result of the COVID response is people that belong to one political party leave Hmm. and the other political party ends up with a monopoly on city politics. And in presidential election leader, in presidential election years, whoever. Uh Uh Uh-oh, what happened? Electoral votes. Yes, we absolutely. lost part of you there, Bill. But so I, I try to understand that. I, I agree a hundred percent what you're saying. But let's just take Portland. So they push all the people that are that have consciences and uh, that are good people that are working hard, contributing to society. They all leave, right? They all leave, and now Portland's stuck with all these people that are dependent on the government. I can understand what their goal is. 
But now what? They have they have no financial support. They have nothing. What are they going to do? Well, I think that we're already hearing it. They're trying to take their own behavior, uh, the the leaders in these these democratic uh, areas, and they're they're trying to take their behavior and the results of their behavior and blame uh, President Trump for it. And I pray that it doesn't work. I pray that people are smart enough and aware enough to realize, um, you know, who, who is, who stands for what, <laughs> you know, um, but we, we need to start uh, wrapping up. Um, no, I'm not. No, we need to keep them on. <laughs> hey, no, I this, don't disagree this, with this that. This is but... <laughs> very interesting to me. I, I just can't believe what I'm learning today. And thank you very much for that. Absolutely. Well, one of the interesting things, Frederick Engels and Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto. And Frederick Engels said how to establish socialism, you need to get rid of the middle class mm -hmm. so that all that's left is the upper ruling class, the deep state, and everyone else that's in the ruled class. So you got to get rid of the middle class. So Frederick Engels wrote that they were alchemists of the revolution, spurring it into artificial crises and each crisis must be worse than the one before, putting out of business more small capitalists. Mm -hmm. This will bring about a commercial collapse and cause there to be a social revolution greater than they could have Im imagined. Here, the, the, one of the writers of the Communist Manifesto says we gotta put small capitalists out of business. Why? Because they're the only ones that can pool their wealth and challenge the ruling class. Mm. And so Lenin, when he took power in the 1920s there in the Soviet Union, he killed the middle class. They were called kulaks. They were uh, wealthy uh, farmers and he, he kills them all. He says, don't just kill them. I want them hung up in the streets and PS, get tougher men. And yeah, he killed them all. And then there wasn't anybody to farm the land. And then they had a t starvation and they don't think too far ahead. Um, but the socialism has as its steps is eliminate the middle class. And the COVID response is what? It's shutting down lots and lots of businesses. Mm. And so this, this uh, when you look at the impact of this, uh, it, is, it fits right hand in glove with the socialist agenda. That's crazy. Oh. Well, again, we need to uh, have you back on and talk about that new book uh, that is titled Socialism, say the rest the of The Real it. History of Plato to the Present. And Socialism, The Real History from Plato to the Present. And then our website's AmericanMinute.com if anyone's interested. Absolutely. And I was just going to say uh, where you can find uh, Prayers and Presidents and all these books, The Chains, uh, Change to Chains, Who's the King in America, all of these books are available. Uh, say the website again and how people can follow you and then we've got to jump. It's AmericanMinute.com. I couldn't be any simpler than that. AmericanMinute.com. Bill Federer, thank you so much for all that you uh, have taught us today and, and caused us, even if people are at home arguing with, their, with you in their mind for any reason, that's awesome because now they're, they're engaged, right? So, it's going to uh, be hard, hard to argue the points that he's brought up. Hey, but there are people that will, and I love it because now the responsibility is yours, whoever's listening. If you're, if you're wanting to argue, the responsibility is yours to go seek out truth. Bill Federer, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Thanks, Bill. Thank you. Anytime. All right. God bless. Well, I would have to say that was awesome. I, I did not even come close to expecting 
what I heard today. Uh, yes. Stuff. I mean, seriously, it was hard to um, to want to ask the next question and, and come off of the topic because he just has so much to offer, so much history that we don't know or we don't care enough to have thought out on our own. And so um, I think that's that's the thing that I want people to come away with. I don't ever want anyone to, to listen to our shows or our that are subject matter experts and just, um, you know, just swallow it wholesale. I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to think about it. I want you to, you know, talk to your, whoever, the person in your life or the people in your life that you wrestle with ideas about and go, I was listening to Gun Freedom Radio the other day and they had this guy on who said, fill in the blank and open those conversations. Um, it can only be good. Uh, and again, I do so appreciate, um, as I, as I just start wrapping up and, and thanking our listeners, I so appreciate when our listeners who maybe don't ascribe to the Christian faith will hang in there and listen to the conversation. Even if we start mentioning the Bible, even if we start mentioning God, um, because truly, we're not trying to indoctrinate. We're trying to share ideas. And, um, you know, if you have something that, that you want to talk to us about, I want this show to be a conversation. Right, Dan? Right. So talk to us through the, the, our email address, email at, or sorry, uh, talk at gunfreedomradio.com. Uh, through the, the, the messenger on, on Facebook, all the social medias that we are, we, we try to monitor those and, and hear your ideas, respond the best way we can. So just thank you, really, honestly, um, it's especially if this whole show was making you want to yell at the YouTube screen or at your, your smart device if you're listening to the audio only. Uh, and argue back. Thank you for hanging in there and listening and considering. Uh, that's everything. Well, and you know what I heard on, a, uh, on this Gun Freedom Radio show that Dan said? First of all, I'm super excited that Dan, the other guy, is back in, back. in his chair this week because last week I had to run this sucker solo and it was just not the same level of fun. Yeah, I drove but four hours. I, I went from LA to Reno and for over four hours of just solid smoke. Oh, yeah. It was the, terrible. The but hey, fires. here's what Dan says. Whoa. Okay? Right. <laughs> it's like an earthquake. Um, all the rioters in Portland and Chicago and all these other places, you guys are being played. Yeah. You know, you're being played. The people with the power are pretending like they're giving you power so that they can take it all away from you when you're done so they can control you 100%. That's what's happening. I, I don't, what's that guy's name? Euros or whatever. I'm not necessarily even say any names. I don't know who you're referring you, Soros, to. Soros, Soros. You know, they say that a lot of these rioters are being funded. Mm. They're being paid by the hour. Mm -hmm. And we do see that. We know that there are protest companies that pay people mm -hmm. to protest and usually backed by large controlling people mm -hmm. and they're they're playing you all right 
I don't know, believe it or don't, uh, wrestle with the idea, argue with your friends. Um, but as long as you're mentally engaged and, and looking for solutions, um, and I think as long as you're looking for ways to take us back to our, our ideals and our principles that our founding fathers fought, bled, starved, and died to secure the right to even put pen to paper and, and write our constitution and our bill of rights. The only but, reason I say that is because there are people that have interviewed protesters that don't even know why they're oh, protesting. Psh, yeah. Well, why are they there then? Right. Yeah. There's something going on. Maybe it's just a fun thing to do for them. I don't do know if them, it's a conspiracy. I'm, I'm going to Peacefully it. protest through arson. I don't know. Whatever. But we got to close. Peaceful. It's peaceful. We got to close. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you so much to uh, our listeners. As I said, your time is so valuable. And when you spend it with us, we, we appreciate you so much. Thank you to our awesome guest today, William J. Federer, uh, author extraordinaire. Uh, check out all of his books at AmericanMinute.com. And until next time, pray. Our presidents have all done it. It looked like it works. Right? It does work. I'm not even asking you to pray and fast because I'm not too good at the fasting part. I like food. But anyway, (laughs) pray for our nation. Yes. Pray for the people who are in positions of leadership. Is that better, Dan? No. No, because there are people in positions of leadership that are rulers. And we just got through having a conversation. pray for them. We just had a conversation about these people. But we have they to pray kings. for them. There are kings in our country. All of them, There Dan. are kings in our country. All of them, Dan. Pray for what? For those people, even if they're doing something through their position that you don't like. You, you want me to pray? Even the ones you don't like. Am I praying to give them more strength? Oh. I don't know. That's between you and God. I just want you to pray for them. God, please. <laughs> All right. Help me understand because it's like these people are trying to take over our country. Yeah. We, Change we the pray way. pray for our enemies. If you think that they're our enemy, then you, we are called to pray for them. To do what? Pray that your enemy That's up what? to you. Okay. Okay. Pray for your leaders. Pray for them. All of them, Dan. All, every, every, Even the ones you don't like. Even. Even especially, especially the ones, the ones you, don't, you like. don't like. Yes. Be good to each other. Have a great week. And God bless. Bye bye.